Now, on the basis of that, will you notice that we have a lamentation over the fall of Egypt now that continues on. Verse 1 of chapter 32, it came to pass in the twelfth year, twelfth month, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say unto him, Thou art like a young lion of the nations, and thou art like a monster, the crocodile in the seas. And they worship both the lion and the crocodile. And thou camest forth with thy rivers, and troublest the waters with thy feet, and foulest their rivers. You see, they had a problem back there of ecology. Old Pharaoh was mud in the water. Now he's been put aside. Thus saith the Lord God, I will therefore spread out my net over thee. God says, just as you put nets in the Nile River to get fish, that's the way I'm going to catch you, you monster of the Nile River, you crocodile, if you please. God says, I'm pulling you out, and you are to be judged, and you are to move to a place where you don't live in a palace. You find yourself on the same plane with your people, with everyone, is on the same plane there. Death sure levels out humanity, does it not? Verse 11 here of chapter 32 For thus saith the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon thee. Now, here for the last time, why he covers this, and not only the king of Babylon will take Egypt, and he mentions that first. Verse 18, this is the word of the Lord came unto him again, saying, Son of man, wail for the multitude of Egypt, and cast them down, even her, the daughters of the famous nations, under the lower parts of the earth, with those who go down into the pit. Whom dost thou pass in beauty? Go down, and be thou laid with the uncircumcised. Now he's going to find out the other rulers are down there. And verse 22, Asher is there. That's Assyria. And all her company, her graves are about her, all of them slain, fallen by the sword. And some... Body else is there. Verse 24, there is Elam and all her multitude round about her grave. You see the body put in the grave, but they've gone someplace, and they've gone to Sheol, the unseen. The Lord called it the place of torment for those that are lost, for the saved. He called it in the Old Testament Abraham's bosom. And then later he said to the thief on the cross, "'Today you'll be with me in paradise.'" Because you see, he hadn't taken the saved of the Old Testament back to heaven. Paul mentions that in the epistle to the Ephesians. Now we have Edom, verse 29. There's Edom, her kings and all her princes. And I pass by up in verse 26. There are Meshach and Chubal, all of that. Verse 32 now, will you listen to this? For I have caused my terror in the land of the living... And he shall be laid in the midst of the uncircumcised with those who are slain with the sword, even Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord. Moves into that unseen world. Gives us a glimpse here. And that's all you've got is a glimpse. Don't try to build a skyscraper or a merchandise center or a mall or shopping area on a place that has just a foundation big enough for a tool shed. Ain't Bill that kind of a theology here. But we just get a glimpse, and that's all. And that's all God intended for us to have. Now, friends, I hope you found your place here in the 33rd chapter of this very wonderful book of Ezekiel. Now, we have come actually to the last major division of the book. From here, chapter 33 through 48, the last chapter, we will see now the glory of the Lord and the coming kingdom. And there is a tremendous break here, and we'll call attention to it as we move along into this particular passage here. Now, the previous chapter, that is chapter 32, concluded the predictions concerning 
the nations that were round about, that were actually contiguous to the land of Israel. And they were very closely related to them, of course, actually related by blood. In this section we are coming to, this man Ezekiel returns back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and Israel will be a subject, but not like it was before. You see, up to chapter 25, everything pointed to the destruction of Jerusalem. And he prophesied that. It came to pass, and the false prophets were proved wrong. Now, he immediately went off the air, let's say. He was silent, dumb, as we're told here. Couldn't speak. That is, he was speaking, but no longer about Jerusalem. Then he gave these prophecies from chapter 25 through 32 about the surrounding nations. There was quite a few of them that were adjoining Israel. Then there was Tyre, Sidon, and then Egypt. And now he's speaking again. He's back on the air. But he's talking about Jerusalem no longer going to be judged because it was judged by that time. He looks now into the future of the coming kingdom. And everything from here on points to that. As it were, he sets his automatic pilot on and he gets his directions, his bearing, and he just zeroes in on the coming kingdom and when the glory of the Lord will be displayed again on the earth. Now, that makes this a very interesting section. Now, first of all, in chapter 33 here, we have the commission renewed to this man, and not only renewed, but it will be also He'll be commended for the fact that he's done a good job up to this point. And from now on, he's going to be speaking to the people of Israel how they're to live in captivity. And how were they to live? In expectancy of the future. Before, they had no hope because of their sin. But now he looks down into the future, and they have a hope now. And today, we have a hope. But our hope is not anchored in anything that men do down here or any gyrations of psychoanalysis. Our hope today is not a philosophy, but it rests upon the Word of God and what He has said will take place in the future. And that is the lodestar of the child of God, not the same as Israel, moving into the millennium. We're moving into actually the new Jerusalem, and that is the thing that's immediately head of the church. Now let's come here to this particular chapter, and we'll lift out some things through this section here. Chapter 33 opens on the same note. This is a stuck record as far as Ezekiel is concerned. Verse 1, Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, He doesn't want you to forget that he's not giving you his theory or ideas, but this is the word of the Lord. Now he says, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their borders and set him for their watchman, if then he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people. Now again, He reverts back to the commission that he gave to this man, Ezekiel, at the very beginning. And he likens it to the watchman in that day. Here is a city. It's a walled city. Most of the cities of importance in that day, if they were subject to an invader, built a wall around. At night, they were appointed, which means the king or the ruler or those that were in authority, appointed a man as the watchman. And he was upon the wall and watched during the night. And I think during the night he called off the watches. All's well. And he looked out on the desert and didn't see the moving of any enemy. And he could say all's well. But the interesting thing was the false prophets were saying all's well. And the enemy was coming. They were too blind to see. Now this man here, Ezekiel, had given them the warning. Verse 6. But if the watchman see the sword come, 
and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned. If the sword come and take any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Now, the people are going to be judged, but the watchman will be held responsible if he doesn't warn them. Now, Ezekiel had warned them. The false prophet said not. He'd done a good job. Now, again, verse 7, "...so thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word of my mouth, and warn them from me." Now, he had fulfilled that commission, you see. Now he says here, "...when I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way." That wicked man shall die in his iniquity. You see, the responsibility of the watchman, and that's what we're talking about here, is to warn the wicked because they're going to be judged. But he is to give them a warning. Now, they didn't hear him. They didn't listen to him. But that's the only way that the watchman can actually clear himself. Now, that today means that the man who's teaching the Word of God is not required to get results. A great many people, they always say, let's get an evangelist that can get results. And if people see folk moving in a meeting, they think that if they're in the back and they come forward, that's good. And if they're forward and go to the back, that's still good, just so you get people moving. May I say to you that it's not the important thing. The important thing when a man is finished giving a message is actually not the result. Is has he given the Word of God? Has he given them warning? And that is the important thing. Actually, the thing I look at is not the folk who come forward. It's the people that walk out after the benediction. Have they been warned? That's the important thing. We've been looking at the wrong crowd. And we say, oh, so-and-so gave such a sweet gospel invitation, and a lot of sweet people came forward. No decisions were actually made, but you know, we had a movement going on. And going forward, and going backwards, going every direction. I remember when I changed in downtown Los Angeles, having people come forward, many timid people before a large congregation. And so we asked them to go to the back. We had a prayer room and asked them to go there. And I had a few old-timers that really got excited. And I said, what is your problem? And one said they should come forward. I said, do I understand you correctly? That they should go east and not go west? Well, they said, we don't mean it that way. Well, I said, that's exactly what you're saying. You see, friends... The important thing for the man who's given out the Word of God's warning. Now, wait just a minute. Oh, I thank God when there are results. And we have literally hundreds of letters here now of people who've accepted Christ as Savior just through listening to the Word of God. I rejoice in that. But frankly, my business is to give out the Word of God. And I frankly want to make sure that the fellow that hears it and doesn't do anything, he's been properly warned. If he's not, I'm responsible. So that's the reason that maybe I give it out as I do, as this man has noticed, and many others have commented on it. Now, let's move down to verse 11. "...say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn from your evil ways." For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Now, the thing that's quite obvious, God doesn't want to judge. Judgment is a strange work. You remember Isaiah said. And now he wants to save them. And he's urging them to turn to him and accept life. Now, these people, they had another complaint. They said, God is not just in his judgment. And I'm going to drop down out of verse 17. Yet the children of thy people say, the way of the Lord is not equal. That is, he's not fair. He judges their body alike. And we've got some good people among us, you see. But as for them, their way is not equal. Now, when the righteous turneth from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, 
He shall even die for it. Now, we're not talking here about somebody losing salvation. God says when one of his children gets into sin, he'll judge him. Now, that's exactly what Paul said. If we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. And he says through John, he said, there is a sin unto death. Now, sin for who? For a lost man? No, he's already under the sentence. That's the child of God. But what kind of death? Physical death. God judges Christians today. And I'm amazed that some folk don't catch on after a while when they're in a work and the work is going down and getting in debt and everything. You'd think the message had come through that maybe God's moving in judgment. Maybe things are not right there, you see. Now, God says that he's righteous in what he does. When the righteous turneth from his righteousness, committeth iniquity, he shall even die for it. But if the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live by it. Now, if a wicked man would turn to God, God will save him. God's made that very clear. Yet ye say, verse 20 now, the way of the Lord's not equal. O ye house of Israel, I will judge you every one after his ways. Now, the fact of the matter is, this man's been carried into captivity, and he was a godly man. He had trusted God, and he's carried just like the most wicked person, and he's complaining. I don't blame him for complaining, because it looks like God's being unfair. God says, don't misunderstand. You are being carried into captivity because the nation has sinned, and you're identified with the nation. And you and I today have to pay an excessive insurance premium because there are a lot of alcoholics around today. I don't drink, but I have to pay for them too. And I have to pay taxes because we've got a lot of foolish folk in Washington that just believe in spending money. And we have to pay for that. Actually, we're identified with a nation. And that was true of Israel. But God says, wait a minute. I'm going to judge every one of you. And my friend, I don't care who you are. You're going to stand before God. Now, if you're a child of God today, he'll judge you for your sin. You won't lose your salvation, but he'll take you to the woodshed. Now, if you're a lost man, you've got no claim on God at all. Now, he's made that very clear in the New Testament. In 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God says, he doesn't say he won't hear the prayer of the wicked. He just says he hears the prayers of the righteous. And he's not obligated to hear the other. But if that wicked man would cry out to him, God would deliver him. But the wicked man has no claim on God. When you hear people today say, why does God let this happen? And they're unsaved. Well, my friend, you have no claim on God. God's righteous when he's judging a lost world. And we forget that, that this happens to be his world. Now, will you notice this? And he's going to be very clear. Oh, this section here, I tell you, it gets right down to the nitty-gritty. Now let me read verse 21. It came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, in the fifth day of the month, that one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me, saying, The city is smitten. Now, Ezekiel had already prophesied it, but he had no information. God told him the city was destroyed. And at that time, his wife died on the very day and he says, don't you grieve, because I want these people to know that I've repudiated that city. They think that I have to have Jerusalem. They think that I will not destroy it. They don't believe I'll judge sin. And he said, I am. Therefore, don't weep for her and let them know that at this time the city is being destroyed for its sin. The city is smitten. Now, I want to tell you, when this was brought to these people, it was absolutely something that dumbfounded them. They were absolutely overwhelmed by it. They had never heard anything like it. They never believed that anything like this could possibly take place. But it's happened now. 
Now the hand of the Lord was upon me in the evening. This is verse 22. Before he who was escaped came, and it opened my mouth until he came to me in the morning, and my mouth was open, and I was no more dumb. Now you see, at the end of chapter 24, that time Ezekiel announced the destruction of Jerusalem, the bloody city. It's gone down now. From then on, he had no word about Jerusalem. From chapter 25, here through chapter 32, then no word about Jerusalem. It's all about these surrounding nations. Now, God no longer makes the man dumb about Jerusalem. He says, I have some messages for you about Jerusalem. Now we can begin to look to the future. These people were hanging on to the false prophets, and they had no word at all. Now he says, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, This is verse 24 now, Son of man, they that inhabit those wastes of the land of Israel speak, saying, Abraham was one, and he inherited the land, but we are many. The land is given us for an inheritance. They go back. They say, Well, look, God took care of Abraham, and there's just one of him, and a whole lot of us. Yes, but there's a lot of difference. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. These people not believing God. That's the reason they've gone down. Verse 25, Wherefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Ye eat with the blood, and lift up your eyes towards your idols, and shed blood, and shall ye possess the land? God says, I won't let you have the land. That's the reason I put the heathen and the pagan out of this land, is because of their sin. And you are doing the same things. Now, verse 28, "...for I will lay the land most desolate, and the pomp of her strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be desolate, that none shall pass through." Now, I can't get elated, as some of my very good minister friends do. When they get to that land, they get into ecstasy. You'd think they were on drugs, the way some of them act. Oh, isn't it wonderful to see this land? Friends, it's just about as desolate as any place that you could possibly find today. That land is desolate because the judgment of God is upon it. All you've got to do over there is look, and today there's a big water shortage, and you put a little water on that land, and my, it blossoms like the rose. But there's not enough water. That's the great problem. Now, therefore... I would say we're not seeing prophecy fulfilled till they get a little more water over there. I suggest to these fellows that are going to find so much fulfilled prophecy when they go over there, I'll take a gallon of water with them and help out because God says it'll be desolate. And his judgment is not upon only a people, but upon a land. Now he goes on to say, verse 30, also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the door of the houses, and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. You see, they are shaken. They're going to listen to him now, but they won't follow through. And they come unto thee as the people come, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words." But they will not do them, for with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. You see, they like to come to church and hear all about love and nice, sweet, lovely things, but it has not changed their lives at all. Remember James very practically says, he says, "...get down where the rubber meets the road. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only." And that's what these people were. Verse 33, "...and when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come, then shall they know that a prophet had been among them." They now know that Ezekiel's a prophet. But now here's the interesting thing. They did not believe he was a prophet before. They now know he's a prophet of God, but they still don't listen to him. May I say to you that unbelief today is willful. It's not mental. That's not your problem, my friend. Your brain and my brain's not big enough for to create a hurdle that you can't get over the Word of God and the problems here. Your problem is you don't want to give up your sin. That was these people. And they were willing to come and listen. It had no effect upon them whatsoever. 
This is tremendous, is it not? Now, friends, we come here in this 34th chapter to this new section, and I have labeled this the false shepherds and then the true shepherd and the future gathering of the flock. Now, this man, Ezekiel, has been declared a prophet. We saw that in the last verse, last time. Verse 33 of chapter 33 said, And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come, then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. They know now, because after all, Ezekiel's the only man that has said Jerusalem would be destroyed. All the false prophets have said it would not. Now the word of confirmation has come. Jerusalem is destroyed. And this man has been declared a true prophet. Now you would think that the people would turn to God. Well, they came and listened to Ezekiel. God says, don't let that deceive you, because the crowds are coming. They are listening, but they are not heeding what you're saying. They are not doers of the word at all. They're just listening. They like for you to talk now about love and the future and prophecy and all of these things, but it hasn't affected their life one whit. They're still living the same way, far from God. Now he has a word about these false prophets. He can label them now because they've been declared, all of them liars. Verse 1 of chapter 34, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, and he didn't say it. God said this concerning them. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock. And that is quite interesting. Very candidly, I have always been opposed to promotion in Christian work. And that doesn't mean that there are not very many wonderful, fine works that should be supported and should have your support. But my point is that they should not be just a promotion agency. They should be feeding the people. They should give out the Word. I had an afternoon service in the church that I served, and it descended, and it came down to a pretty low level. Everything came in there. I wanted to promote to get an offering. And we reversed that. We said, look, you have no right to try to fleece these people Try to get an offering from them until you give them something. And I feel that way about anything today. And that's the thing we try to make very careful on this. This program, and we're trying to keep it that way, we recognize there are many wonderful things that should be supported. We're not in that business. All we're asking is just enough to pay for the program. And we feel like that where you get your blessing, that's what you should support and that my business should be not to beg all the time, but should be to give out the Word of God. When I give out the Word of God, I believe that I'm feeding sheep. And I think that's my business today. And my business is not to fleece them and share them all the time. And there's a lot of that going on today, friends. People should be given the Word of God. Now, that was God's criticism of these false prophets. They had not given the people the Word of God. And today, that should be, I think, the measure. Now, he goes on to talk here. Verse 4, "...the diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken." You see, all of us are needy people today. And the only thing that can minister to our deep needs is the Word of God. Now, if you don't give out the Word of God, you're not ministering to the people. It must be given out. And I don't think these little sermonettes for Christianettes by preacherettes, I don't think that quite does the job. That's my feeling, of course. And as I've said before, I could be wrong, but if I thought I was, a change. All right, verse 5. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became food to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. You see, when people are not being fed in a church, they'll scatter. They'll go around to where they can be fed. 
And no use criticizing them, finding fault, because sheep want to be fed. That's a nature of a sheep. And that's a nature of a child of God. He wants to hear the Word of God. Now, God holds these shepherds responsible. Verse 7, Therefore ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. God says, I'm against them, and I'm as much opposed to them as I am any sinner or any sin, and I'm going to hold them responsible. We come now beginning at verse 11, and here you have God's shepherd and the Lord Jesus, you know, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And he's coming. Ezekiel said he was coming. And friends, he's coming again because he hasn't fulfilled all the prophecies concerning his shepherding of this earth. Now, will you listen to this? Now we're beginning to move into the future. This is the encouragement for these people in captivity. They should listen to this. Verse 11, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. He's the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd of the sheep. And he says, I'll search out my sheep. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And the thing that impresses me now in the rest of this chapter is the most wonderful statement that you can possibly find. I get a little weary of hearing what men do and what they have done and that sort of thing. This, all this is a new note here. I will, God says. I've counted, and it could be more, I did it rather hurriedly, 21 times from verse 11 through 29, God says, I will. More than one time a verse, God says, I will, I will. That's grace when God says that, I will. May I say to you, that shepherd one day said, Come unto me, all ye that labor in the heavy laden. I will rest you. I will. This is the shepherd. You see, I will give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. That's what my shepherd said. Wonderful now. Now listen to him. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he's among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I'll deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And he came 1,900 years ago, and he says, my sheep hear my voice. You know why they hear his voice? Two reasons, because he's calling them. He's calling them. He's calling them today. And the second reason is that his sheep know him. And they hear his voice, and they know him. Oh, how wonderful this shepherd is. So will I seek out my sheep, and will deliver them out of all places where they've been scattered in the cloud in dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples. I'll gather them from the countries. Now, this shepherd is talking about the nation Israel, the future of the nation Israel what he's going to do in the future. They're down there now in captivity, and they're there because of their sins. And added to that, they listen to the false prophets. Now will you listen? He says, I am not through with them. I haven't thrown them overboard. He says, you are millennialists. You ought to read Ezekiel. Then you'd find out I'm not through with my sheep. And I intend to bring them back. Listen to him. Verse 14, I will feed them in a good pasture. Verse 15, I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. And when they lie down, they're safe. They're not safe today. That nation over there is not safe at all. Verse 16, I will seek that which was lost. This is the shepherd that when he got one sheep lost, he goes out after it. 
And for the nation Israel, he'll do that for the church today. That's what he says of the church today. There was a shepherd that had a hundred sheep. One sheep got lost. What'd he do? Forget it. So, man, if the little fellow wants to run off after all 99 sheep, that's a pretty good number to come through with. But this shepherd says, I started out with a hundred. I'm going to come through with a hundred. Vernon McGee's going to be there. Not because he's a smart sheep, because sheep are stupid. He's going to be there because I've got a wonderful shepherd. And he says, I will. I will. I will. And again and again. Now, I want to drop down verse 20. You go through this section. I will again and again. Here it is. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle, between the lean cattle. God says, I'll separate the sheep and the goat. You remember the Lord Jesus gave a parable? It says, An enemy came in, sowed tares. Then his servant says, Well, let's go pull up the tares. He said, You let them alone. Both grow together. I'll do the separating. And I'm sure glad that's his job today. He's the one. Somebody comes to me and says, you think so-and-so safe. I don't know. That's not my business. That's his business, not mine. He knows those that are his. He says he does. Now, verse 22, Therefore will I save my flock. They shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them. I'm not going into this at this particular point, but it's my firm conviction that David will rule here on this earth. I think throughout eternity, be the king over this earth. And he'll be the vicegerent of the Lord Jesus. We're told in the church that where I am, ye may be also. Now, I think he'll be in the new Jerusalem. We'll be with him there. Now, if he comes to this earth, we're coming also, but just for a visit. So don't buy real estate, too much of it down here. You won't be needing it. Be sure you are sending up plenty of material to build your good home over there. Now will you notice, verse 24, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, my friend, either you believe it or you don't believe it. Either this is the Word of God, it's not. If it is, he's not through with the nation Israel. Now, verse 25, And I will make with them a covenant of peace, and I'll cause the evil beast to cease from among the land. You see, it's quite interesting here that the land and the people go together. And when they are in that land being blessed, then the people are in right relationship to God. Verse 28, And they shall no more be a prey to the nations. They are today. Neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. Why? Because God says, I will. And when he says, I will, he's going to do it. Now, in chapter 35 is a remarkable chapter in here. And let me say just this word concerning it. I read now first, verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir. Prophesy against it, and say unto it, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I'll stretch out mine hand against thee, and I'll make thee most desolate. I'll lay thy cities waste. Now, this was Edom. And in Edom, there was this rock-hewn city that was known as Petra. It's there today. But there's no area any more desolate than that area. Now, God says here, verse 9, I will make thee perpetual desolations, and thy city shall not return, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Now, he said that back in the 25th chapter, verse 14. He says it again. Now, why is this inserted at this particular point? God is doing it for a very definite reason, that Edom, actually, Esau was the brother of Jacob, And he became his bitterest enemy. This nation did. It hurt them probably more than anyone else. And they represent the enemy of God in this world. The enemy that's going to rise in the last day under Antichrist against God. And I believe the enemy is brought in for that purpose to show that God is giving a program here. And the program goes like this. 
these people are to be restored to the land, a place of blessing. Then the people, as they've been restored to the land, they're put there in peace. But the enemy is still about. Then God judges the enemy. And we're going to see that when we get over here to the 38th and 39th chapters. And then we're going to see the worship of these people of God living in peace and blessing. What a glorious future is ahead for them. And that's given to us here. Now, in chapter 36, we have the restoration of Israel to the land. Also, thou son of man, prophesy unto the mountains of Israel. Say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy have I spoken against the residue of the nations and against all Edom who have appointed my land unto their possession with the joy of all their heart, with despiteful minds to cast it out for prey. God is determined that the wicked will not inherit this earth. He's made it clear the meek shall inherit the earth. They're not doing it today. The wicked are the ones that have it today, and they are the ones doing pretty well with it. Now you have here the prophecy concerning the fact that the land is to be restored. All I've got to do is just drive through that land and know prophecy is not fulfilled. A great many people think they see prophecy fulfilled on every hand. Why? Because when he brings them back, the land is to be blessed. Verse 6, "...prophesy therefore concerning the land of Israel. Say unto the mountains, to the hills, to the rivers, to the valleys, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy, in my fury, because ye have borne the shame of the nations." Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I have lifted up mine hand. Surely the nations that are about you, they shall bear their shame. But ye, O mountains of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are soon to come home and soon to God. After all, the day is a thousand years with him. Now, in verse 16, here is a great prophecy concerning the future of the people. And as I've said before, the people and the land belong together. The Mosaic law was not only given to a people, it was given for a land. Most of these people worship on Saturday today. They break the Sabbath day's journey by just going to church. Verse 16 now, "...moreover the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their land..." They defiled it by their own way and by their doings, and their way was before me as the uncleanness of a defiled woman. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land. Now, God goes on to say, I scattered them. But listen, verse 21, But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, to which they went, therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned. I'll sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations. You see, God has yet to defend his name in this earth today. A great many people ridicule the church today. They say, well, look at those people. And they blaspheme God because of it. Now, God's going to justify himself in this earth, and he's going to sanctify his name down here. They take his name in vain today. God says, that's going to stop. You're going to honor me. This is his world, you see. Now, God says here what he's going to do. Verse 26, "...a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I'll take away the stony heart." out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. A change is going to take place in them. What's going to happen? They're going to be born again. Verse 27, I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, that's what Joel meant in his prophecy. There's a day coming when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, not some, very few on the day of Pentecost. All Peter said that day was, he says, don't ridicule this, brethren, say they're drunk. This is like what Joel says is going to come in the last days. And the Spirit has come upon a few. And today God's calling out a people to his name. 
The minute that you turn to Christ, you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and baptized by the Holy Spirit, put in the body of believers. And in that day, God says, I'll put my spirit within you and they will dwell in the land. Verse 29, I'll also save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. You see, there'll be prosperity in that land. God promised that to them, physical blessings as he's promised us spiritual blessings. Now, this concludes with a great prophecy. Verse 35, And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. I don't think you could say that today. You might say it. wouldn't be true. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fortified and are inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I'll do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock, as the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in a solemn feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I'm the Lord. They don't know that over there today, and they don't know it in this country, and they don't know it in the world today. But they're going to know it, my friend. That day is coming. Now, this 37th chapter is a vision of the Valley of Dead Bones, and it started off one of the spiritual years ago. I thought about labeling this chapter, Dem Bones. That would be a good subject for the chapter. But the spiritual is not the important one, and that's really not the interpretation there. What you have here is the future restoration of Israel. And that has to do with their national entity and also the spiritual revival or restoration, which the Lord had already announced. And the chapter we just concluded in the 36th chapter belongs very vitally to chapter 37. And we have a dramatic and remarkable vision in this chapter here. And I'd like to make it very clear at the very beginning, we are not talking at all about the resurrection of the dead that are in the church. And this is the great leap. Those who spiritualize all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament especially, they say the first part of it is myth, that is, the historical section. And now when we get to the prophetic section, they spiritualize it away. The interesting thing is, all of it is literal. And when you take it like that, it'll make sense. And we're talking here about the nation Israel, and we're not talking about a spiritual resurrection or a physical resurrection. I've unfortunately, in my notes, labeled chapter 37, resurrection of Israel. And I still like it, but it's misunderstood. They think that it means beginning with Abraham, the raising of the dead. And frankly, it has no reference to that only if you want to make an application. Now, let's begin reading now at chapter 37, verse 1. Will you listen? The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. Now, we saw before that before Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, Ezekiel was transported to Jerusalem. And I don't think God had any difficulty doing that. If man today can make a jet plane that can carry you halfway around the world in half a day, I see no reason why God wouldn't be able to do something that would be compared, commensurate with who he is. And so I don't think he had any difficulty getting Ezekiel up and taking him to Jerusalem. Now, I believe that he takes him here literally because it says here, and he carried me out in the spirit of the Lord. 
I think that what he's telling us is that the Spirit of the Lord now carries him out to the valley which was full of bones. Let's take a look at this. He says here in verse 2, "...and he caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry." Now, will you take a good look at this here? You remember the story about Lewis Manley? and his partner by the name of Rogers. Back in 1849, they crossed Death Valley here in California to bring back supplies to the Bennett Arcane Party that was stranded. You see, this party wandered into Death Valley, actually by mistake. And they shouldn't have been there, and they would have all have perished had not these men crossed. Well, this tenderfoot from Vermont and his partner... They actually were the first white men to cross and to gaze upon the grandest scene of desolation and death that any two men had seen, with the exception of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, 2,500 years before them and preceding them, he was given a vision of another death valley, more desolate, more fearsome and awesome than Death Valley here in California. Now, the valley that Ezekiel saw was filled with dead bones. And the thing about them, it characterized them. They were very dry, and they were scattered. They were all over the place. Now, will you notice what he says here? And he caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Now, this is a group of bones here, scattered all over the place. They're human bones. And the question that's put to this man Ezekiel is, can these bones live? And actually, the answer of Ezekiel is, O Lord God, thou knowest. In other words, he said, I don't see how they could. It's beyond me. You alone know whether these dead bones can live or not. Now notice what he says. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, there's something rather, well, I'd say ironical, and I would also like to add humorous. I've said again and again, God has a sense of humor. And this seems to me to be an instance of one. If you don't see that which is funny, well, then you just pass by it. It's all right. And all you'll see is just a bunch of dead bones. But will you notice Ezekiel there? God says to him, prophesy these bones. And you start out by saying, Oh, ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And I have a notion, Ezekiel says, Lord, you don't mean for me to start talking to these dry bones here. The man with the white coat net will be looking for me if I start speaking to these old dry bones. And by the way, that's not a good introduction. You know, you wouldn't, no preacher begin to Sunday morning saying to his congregation, O oh, ye dry bones. And a friend of mine, who also has a good sense of humor, he said to me, he says, you know, I have a church. And he says, I'd like to begin like Ezekiel did. But he said, I dare not, because he says, the bones I speak to are just about as dry as Ezekiel's were. Actually, here he's looking out in a valley filled with these dry bones. And he's to speak to them. And Gracious alive, what a picture that you got here. This man is saying that. But did you know that every preacher that's speaking today to a congregation, they're the saved and the unsaved, and those that are saved, they may have ears to hear but don't hear. And the ones that are not saved, they're dead in trespasses and sins. They haven't been redeemed yet. And he's just about as helpless as Ezekiel. Any preacher that knows the real state 
and condition of the lost recognizes his helplessness. And so this man, Ezekiel here, he's to say to the dry bones, I want you to hear what God has to say. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I'll cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I'll bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Now, God says, I want you to speak to them, and I'll be the one that will give them life. And that's our condition today. If God doesn't move, I've shared several letters with you where folk have said, you saved me. I remember one woman, that's the way she began her letter. You saved me. Well, friends, I saved no one. <laughs> I just speak to dry bones, that's all, and try to give the Word of God. Now, the Spirit of God has to bring life, and that's the only way life could come. Now, that, to me, is the application here. Now, it's going to have a tremendous interpretation. Now, will you listen to him? Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. This man, Ezekiel, he obeys God, you see. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And here's where that spiritual really gets with it, when these bones start coming together. And I'm of the opinion Ezekiel had a rather funny feeling down in that valley when all these bones came together. Then you have here, verse 8, And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Now, you have here a method, and I want you to notice the method. Number one, we see here these bones were scattered, and they were dry and dead. That's the first state. And then they began to come together gradually. And there was a process. The sinews and the flesh came upon them. That's verse 8 here. And it was not instantaneous at all. And then notice what happened. But all you have is a corpse. You just have an undertaking establishment. You have a group of bodies no longer bones, but bodies with flesh on them. They look like human beings, and they are, but they don't have any life in them. Verse 9, Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath, came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Now, that's the picture that you have here. And the thing that he did here was to speak, and there came life in. Now, that is a picture that resembles the creation of man at the very beginning. You remember, God took man of the dust of the earth. Ezekiel started with bones. God started with just the dirt and the dust of the earth. And then he breathed life in. Now, here you have three stages. And the three stages are scattered bones, dead, oh, just dead as they could be. Then you have the second stage. They've come together. Flesh has come upon them. Skins come upon them. They're bodies, but they're dead bodies. Then the third stage is they're made alive. Now, I believe here that you find the key to prophecy. This, I think, is the backbone of prophecy. Verse 11, will you listen? Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now, friends, we're not talking about the church. We're talking about the house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we're cut off on our part. Now, you see, they went from one extreme to another. As long as Jerusalem stood and the false prophets said they were going back, that was a hope, a false hope. Now that Jerusalem is destroyed, they go to the other extreme. 
they have what the psychologists would call manic depressive psychosis. They're in a bad state. They were up high one day. Now they've hit the very depths. They're at the bottom. And they say, we have no hope. And this vision is given to let them know that they have a hope. It's about the house of Israel. Now, how are we going to interpret it? Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Now, somebody's going to say, But wait a minute. I think you must have missed it a moment ago. You said this was not physical resurrection. I still say it. And on what basis? Now, I'm going to drop down to verse 21. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations into which they're gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. Now, that's what God meant by bringing them up out of their graves. They are buried in the nations of the world, and they are to be brought back and become a nation. And I want to say something rather carefully now. Three stages that you have here. If there is any place you have fulfilled prophecy, this is it. And as many of you know, I don't go for the fact that I believe that we're seeing prophecy fulfilled. But I'll go this far, that the nation Israel was buried and scattered in the nations of the world and dead to God, dead to the things of God. Now they have come back as a nation. But over there today, it's a corpse. Oh, they got a flag. They got a constitution. They have a prime minister. They have a parliament. They have police. They have an army. They are a nation. They even have Jerusalem today. They have all of that. They have everything except spiritual life. Now, I want to say this, but say it kindly. When you cross over out of old Jerusalem, the Arab section where you are with the Moslem and come over into the other section of Israel, there is no spiritual life. As far as I'm concerned, there's as much deadness on one side as the other. Now, there's a great deal more of that which is materialistic, that which is intellectual, that which denotes civilization on the Israel side, but no spiritual life whatsoever. Now, in this section here, he mentions two sticks. I'm not going to detail. One stick is Israel, one is Judah. Now, they're going to be put back together again. Now, that's the thing that is important for us to see here. And he also says that he's going to put David on the throne. Let's read that now. And by the way, that must mean that there were never ten lost tribes. If they are, God knows where they are. And I'm confident it won't be Great Britain that's going to be joined to them in that land. Let me read here. Verse 22, And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations. Verse 24, And David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. Now, that one shepherd is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came, he came, born in the line of David. Read the first chapter of Matthew. He came into that line. The angel said to Mary, and read Dr. Luke, the first and second chapters. Very carefully, we're told, he came in the line of David. Now, we're told here that the one that came in that line is the shepherd. He's to rule over them. I personally believe that God will raise up David to reign over them, either in the millennium or in the eternal kingdom, when the millennium is just going to usher in the eternal kingdom, in one or the other. And I know there are some that believe one and some believe the other. And this is one place where I go with both. I'm of the opinion he'll be the vicegerent of the Lord Jesus Christ down here. Now, God says that's going to come to pass. It has not come to pass yet. 
Now, verse 28, "...and the nations shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore." There will be a millennial temple, and there will be an eternal temple down here. Somebody says, but it says in Revelation, there'll be no temple there. That's where the church is, in the New Jerusalem. You see, you get into hopeless confusion unless you let the Word of God say what it wants to say. We're going to leave off right there and pick up next time, and I believe we're going to see Russia in prophecy. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.